Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just you forgot to enter. Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast. And can you guys smell what Big Bonnie's cooking up right now? Give a little sniff. <laughs> Maybe another one. <laughs> it smells like he's cooking up an interview, brother. Truthfully, guys, I hadn't run an interview in, I don't know, 18 months, something like that. And uh felt good, man. Felt good to be back at it, just like riding a bike, picking right back up where I left off. And today's episode was with Chris Kosman. I told you guys I was going to start bringing producers in, directors in, and that's not just film producers, but just producers of anything. And he essentially, Chris Kosman, produces and directs the hardest foot race in the world. It's called the Badwater 135. For those of you who tapped outside of the ultra marathon world, Badwater is the go-to race. Like if you're going to reach the pinnacle of ultra endurance running, you want to go run Badwater 135. It starts in the desert in California during the hottest time of the year. Could be like 125 degrees. And then runners got to run 135 miles through the desert and then up a bunch of mountains at the end of it. And uh, a lot of endurance talk in there, a lot of endurance training talk, a lot about running, a lot about how he kind of got into it. And it felt good. There are other sickos like me out there. Uh, super, super smart guy really intelligent guy and uh i really enjoyed it there is a piece at the end where if you guys have read david goggins's book he talks about david goggins because in david goggins's book he talks about chris Kosman, this guy um making it hard on him to get into bad water and so he talked about that story which i thought was pretty funny and additionally he talked a lot about human potential and how his race is just an exercise and people striving to reach their potential, which I thought was really, really cool because that's essentially what it is. Some people can view it as just craziness, but other people view it as, oh shit, no, this is us trying to be our best. You can't get much better than this. So, uh, hope you guys enjoy it. Fun to get some interviews back going. Let me know if you enjoyed it. Shoot me a text or a DM or whatever. And uh, let's keep the ball rolling, man. The brand will never die. All love brother. All right, man, we're rolling. How are you, man? I'm good. Did you uh, hit a morning run this morning? No, I had to get up and get some work done first. But it's a beautiful, perfect day, so I'll get out later. Yeah, what is it like right now in L.A.? Probably 70-something and blue sky and sunny. Can't beat it, man. That That's one of my main – as I was saying yesterday to you on the phone, that's one of my main drivers for wanting to get out there. It's just the year-round training there is amazing. Yeah. It's funny, you live here, I mean, we talk all the time, you know, about the weather, and this is why people move here and put up with the ridiculous prices and stuff, Um, but it also gets kind of boring, Um, you know, like I often wish I lived somewhere with four seasons, Um, and the summers are pretty brutal, at least in the valleys, it's better on the ocean side of the, of the, you know, LA, but summers are hardcore. Now, what is the difference between the climate in the valley and like closer to Santa Monica in the oh, it's peak world apart. Like I, I live, you know, I'm backed up into the Santa Monica Mountains on the north side, 
and the south side is where the ocean is. And even though just right over those mountains is is that part of LA and Santa Monica and all that, uh, during the summer it could be twenty five degrees cooler over there versus here. Wow. Okay. Good to yeah. know. So, uh, but on the other hand, we've got a lot more nature here, and you know we've, you know, and it's a toss up, you know, and we can get up the coast to Santa Barbara and other places easier from here than over on the West side and all that. So it's, there's pros and cons to every area. For sure. In the Santa Monica mountains, you have like actually vast mountains, deep trails. But I, when I was staying with my friends in Mar Vista, there are canyons in Mar Vista and in Ladera Heights. Have you ever gone and trained over there at all? Just a little bit, but yeah, there is, there's some nice pockets of land still in there that, uh you know have been protected because they're wetlands or things like that um there's a lot around la there's no doubt and it's not just the san monica mountains too there's the san gabriel mountains and there's the verdugos and there's you know griffith park and uh you know there's there's a lot of places it's funny some people have never been here they think that we just live in the desert or something and then we have ten thousand foot mountains just right here in los angeles so there's a lot to see and do yeah, there was a, there's a canyon in Culver City. I, I forget that. Maybe it's the Baldwin Hills, but they have a staircase embedded into the side of it, which yeah. when I, so I was training on it about two weeks ago and I was thinking this would be a great, some sort of great ultra event to see if someone could do this for 24 hours because it's absolutely brutal. Yeah, that's, yeah, the people make good use of staircases in LA. In fact, there's a whole group on Facebook. They meet up all the time doing staircases. They know what? every, yeah, and they string together staircases in all different parts of the whole LA basin. Um, yeah, it's, it's actually a whole thing because that's a good way to get some good training and just do something different. Uh, and you connect neighborhoods in different areas together that, you know, you otherwise wouldn't. Um, and yeah, and then the stairs in Santa Monica are just super famous. I mean, you go there 24 seven, there's people doing the stairs there. I didn't even know that. Wow. Um, Hey, before we move on, would you mind just giving everyone who's going to be tuning in a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Like the 20 second version? Just like you quick sales pitch who you are. So then, I mean, and then we'll get into it. All right. Yeah, I'm Chris Kostman, the Chief Adventure Officer at Adventure Corps and the Race Director of the Worldwide Series of Badwater Races, the world's toughest ultramarathon events. That's what I do and live for. And what I really liked, because I was doing research, man, I want to make sure I always show up prepared. What I really liked on your bio is, as I was saying to you yesterday, is adventure entrepreneur. I thought that was the sickest title of all time. And as I was saying, you're probably the only person I know who actually has that title. Yeah, it's, that's, that's what I do. That's, you know, for me, there's the two things that I do that are intimately tied are seek adventure and share adventure. And so my natural instinct when I go out and, you know, do or experience or find some new adventurous things, I want to take somebody there. Uh, and maybe that's just something, you know, with a friend or three, or it, it turns into a, you know, commercial enterprise where I put a whole thing together and take people there. But yeah, there's just so much out there in the world to do. And, and most people sort of spend a lot of time just in their own neighborhood. And um, you don't often have to go far to have great adventure. And on the other hand, when you do go far, it just heightens everything and makes it that much more memorable. 
Yeah, Dean Carnaz has a I hope I'm saying his name right. Is it Carnazes? Carnazes, yeah. Yeah, he has a quote in his book where he says a lot of people think you have to go get on a flight to go on an adventure, but you can go on one right in your backyard pretty easily. Absolutely. No matter where you live. I mean, even full on concrete urban jungle, you can have great adventures. You just you just have to go out and find it and create it and do it. Now peeling it like all the way back when did you start kind of getting a bug to go like explore start getting into ultra events when did that start for you uh it started when i was 14 and i got into bicycling Uh, i had just spent a year traveling around europe and egypt with my parents and brother we visited 25 countries drove 25,000 miles uh starting and finishing in you know the la area where i grew up this town called glendora we literally drove to the East Coast, shipped our car, <laughs> went all over Europe and Egypt and back, and then shipped our car back to the East Coast and then drove back. And uh, soon after we came home, one of my parents' teacher friends came over for dinner, and he told us how he'd gotten into bicycling and biked across America while we were gone. And I was just totally enthralled with that. And he had his bike in the back of his pickup truck out front. And he let me just ride it down the street and back. And I'd never been on like a fancy bicycle before. And it just blew my mind. And so I was already an entrepreneur. I I got the money together within a few months. I bought a bike exactly like his. And in the day after I got it, I rode 50 miles through the mountains up to Mount Baldy and back. And it just was, it was a life-changing experience because I had this love of travel and exploration from my upbringing and from my parents. Um, But when you're not 16 yet and don't drive, you're kind of limited or you think you're limited by, oh, well, your parents have to drive you everywhere or you catch a ride with somebody or maybe you ride your bike around town. But to then take that to a completely different level where you go out and ride 50 or 100 miles in a day when you're 14, 15 years old, it just, you know, your whole world shrinks because now you can reach all kinds of things under your own power. And, uh, and so that's how it all started for me. That first, literally the first ride after I got my bike was up to Mount Baldy and back. And now, genetically, then, sorry to cut you off, genetically, are your parents athletes? Because that's pretty, that's a freakish distance to do when you're 14 years old. <laughs> no, I, my parents are, are not athletes. They're, they're, they're intellectuals. Um, but they're very adventurous and, you know, and, and on those trips that we did in Europe, like we'd be in big cities like, you know, Paris or London or something, we would easily walk 10, 12, 15 miles in a day, just connecting all these various sites together. And, uh, and so, and we scaled the pyramids, my dad and my brother and I, we, we climbed the third tallest pyramid in, in Giza, Egypt. Um, and so, yeah, we did physical things on those trips, but I I wouldn't describe my parents as athletes, but adventurers, absolutely. And, uh, that's, that's really where it all came from. Okay. So you're 14, you go on the 50 mile bike ride and then you're still in school, but do you have the idea percolating that, Hey, I might want to go to, I might want to be an event producer at some point, or I want to go to expeditions. Well, the other twist of fate that happened in that same year, um, I turned 15, but just within a few months of getting into cycling, another one of my parents' school teacher friends called up, asked for me, got on the phone. He said, have you ever heard of Lon Haldeman? And I said, well, yeah, he's going to be in the race across America this summer. 
And this is a transcontinental nonstop bicycle race from coast to coast. And it started that year. And coincidentally, this other friend of my parents uh, had reached out to him and was going to host him and his support team before the race. And so before that very first race across America happened, I went and met him and his crew and he won the race that year and the next year. And I, so I immediately got involved with the race across America initially as a spectator, um, you know, going to the start those first couple of years. Um, but then a year and a half into my cycling, I met the founder of the race across America, John Marino. And uh, he basically, be he became my mentor, um, not only as an athlete, but promoting myself. And, uh, and then he invited me to start working at his races. And so it all just happened when I was 16, 17, 15 to 17 years old that I got immediately into long distance bicycling, immediately got involved with the Race Across America, immediately had these mentor figures come along uh, or that I sought out and it just all blew up from there. It was just all fortuitous timing. Now that's interesting because truthfully, when it comes to ultra endurance events, I've been finding that a lot of people in these races and a lot of people I meet, they actually start like even into their thirties and forties. Yeah. So you're probably the only person I've actually ever met that kind of grew up in this. Yeah. It's that's very much true because the normal trajectory for people who are, you know, I think for most people when they're young and athletic is they do team sports, football, baseball, things like that, or even track and cross country. And they do it through high school, possibly college. And then they go out into the working world, they get a career, they, you know, get married, buy homes, have kids, and they get away from all of whatever athleticism they were doing when they were young. And then they reach a point in their life where they need that, miss that, want that, or maybe they finally have enough free time because their kids have reached a certain age or something. And then they pick up running or cycling or something like that, that they can do on their own. Because that's the drawback to team sports is you need a team. And things like cycling and running, you can do by yourself. And so, you know, as an event promoter my whole life, the overwhelming majority of people coming into it are people who are getting into sports either for the first time ever or the second time, but with a 10, 20, 30 year gap since they last did things in high school or college. Um, and so, yeah, all those <laughs> several decades at the beginning of my whole career, I was always younger than everybody. I mean, especially back then when I was in the race across America, when I did the race, by the way, which was when I was only 20, I was far and away the youngest person to ever do the race. And the vast majority of people competing were late 30s into 50s. And so I was the, the youngster. But by the time I was 20, I was like a grizzled old veteran of the sport because <laughs> I was there at the beginning of ultra cycling and, uh, and you know, heavily involved. Um, so yeah, so I just feel really fortunate that that uh, the influence of my parents in terms of, you know, loving travel and adventure and exploration was then, you know, greatly accelerated and heightened by these two different friends of theirs who, you know, got me into cycling and then got me involved with the race across America. And, you know, that's, that's the foundation for everything. Well, I was going to say too, it's also what a blessing to work under that race director because you learned at a young age that you could monetize the passion. Yeah. 
Well, it was actually kind of crazy. Like when I was 18, I was the lead race official of that race across America that year. And the top competitor who ultimately won was Jonathan Boyer, the first American ever compete in the Tour de France just two years prior. And here I am, 18, just graduated from high school. I'd actually qualified to be in that race because I'd placed 12th in a 750-mile qualifying race. But I was getting ready to go off to UC Berkeley, so I wasn't going to compete. And so John Marino, the race director, put me in charge of Jonathan Boyer, the, the most decorated professional cyclist of the era. And I spent nine days going across America and ultimately, you know, watching him win the race. And there was just so much responsibility. And it was a massive, you know, learning curve um, and incredibly impactful and transformative to have that front row seat while he and Michael Seacrest, the premier ultra cyclist of that era, uh, you know, duped it out. They were in this dark duel across America and I was just watching the whole thing. And, and I had a job to do in terms of officiating the race and, and helping the race go smoothly and safely and dealing with things that, you know, happened during the race and all that. But I also just as an athlete and as a young person was just mesmerized and, and, uh, metamorphized uh, by that experience. Um, and that, you know, was very formative in terms of me being a race director myself, you know, working on these races that are held on the open road, which is very unlike, you know, most sporting events, they're in a stadium or a track or a park or something like that. And so this, this experience with open road races was, 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 was huge. And I just feel really fortunate that everything lined up and I was there at the right time and, you know, the right people. And, and, uh, and I got to have all those experiences. So this is when you're 18, but then you, you leave for college and you pursue archaeology, correct? Yeah. Okay. So did you deviate from product, race production at this point and you kind of just went all in on archaeology or how did that work out? No, no, I've, I've never been able to, uh, no, I, I, I started racing. I, I got sponsored uh, starting when I was 17. And, you know, and I had to be sponsored because doing, first of all, the equipment's really expensive, the support team, the travel, everything involved. And so I immediately uh, saw myself and presented myself as a professional cyclist um, but also an entrepreneur at the same time. First of all, my entrepreneurship started when I was much younger selling avocados from our backyard. We had nine trees and that was how I financed my cycling career and bought my first bike and all of that was through our <laughs> avocado sales. Wow. Um, and, and then the racing and the sponsorship and all of that. But at the same time, I started writing articles. I was working on races. I was just involved with the cycling and endurance sports industries, you know, on different levels, however I could uh, to earn money and to just be, because I was so passionate, I just wanted to be involved as many ways as possible. Um, and then while I was doing that, I was going to the university. Um, I did take the spring semester off two years in a row, the two years that I competed in the race across America, because I needed the time to not only train but even more so to work on sponsorship and promoting myself. And, you know, this was before the internet and, you know, I had a paper newsletter and a mailing list and I was, you know, generating press coverage about me as well as writing articles for magazines. 
um, and you know, doing a lot of public speaking and slideshows and stuff like that. And so those those two spring semesters I took off. So it took me five years rather than four to graduate from my undergraduate degree. Um, but yeah, so I was the you know scholar athlete all the way through basically, and still am. Now, how was traditional academia for you in sitting in a chair and at a table? Was that tough? Uh, no, I, I, I'm a sponge for knowledge and wisdom. And I just really was enthralled with what I was studying. And in archaeology, the classes would have two, five, ten other students. Even as an undergrad, I'd often be with grad students. Um, and I was literally sitting at the feet of you know, like legit archaeology superheroes, like Indiana Jones type people that had just done it, did and do, you know, incredible things. And so I just lapped it all up and I loved it. Um, and my professors got a charge out of it. Like they loved how enthusiastic I was about what we were studying, uh, which was, you know, the ancient world in South Asia and the, the Middle East primarily. Um, but also I remember at one point, one of my, I think I was in grad school, but one of my professors um, had flown somewhere to give a lecture. And in the in-flight magazine, there was this full page ad. I don't remember what the ad was for, but it was a picture of a guy on a mountain bike parachuting. And he had torn that out and he wrote on it, Chris on his way to my seminar. <laughs> <laughs> and he gave that to me and, and uh, I just loved that. And, uh, and then I got to work on archaeological projects across the S South Asia and the, and the Near East or the Middle East. And uh, I'd go out running and, and exploring on, you know, the limited free time we had. And yeah, so it, I made it all work. It wasn't easy, but to me, why in I, some way, it all ties together. Yeah, why I ask is because there's a lot of ADHD in this world, in the <laughs> world of ultra endurance. And so personally for me, um, running has been a, a great outlet because I've never been able to sit and meditate ever. And, yeah. uh, it's the first time where I've actually had like mental clarity because I'm what some would call hyper. Um, yeah. but it seems like you've just been driven by passion your whole life. That's all. That's like, that's the best life ever. Yeah, no, it, I, way back then I just decided I was going to make a career being myself and pursuing things that I found interesting. And that's why I studied archaeology, because I was just passionate about it. I didn't really expect that there would be any career potential with it. And yet I spent 10 years between undergrad, master's degree, and being in a PhD program twice. I spent 10 years on that purely because of the love of the subject matter and the associated travel and the knowledge and the wisdom. And not ever expecting to commercialize or capitalize on that at all, which I never have. Um, and that's okay. Um, but no, I can be sedentary too. I, I'm not a big meditator, but I can sit and read for hours. I mean, look at what's behind me here. I mean, that's just a tiny fraction. I mean, I'm a, you know, I, I read all the time. And, uh, but yeah, I really do love the, the meditative aspects of endurance sports, whether it's, you know, running, cycling, swimming, or other paddle boarding things that I do. Like I, that's always right from the beginning been part of the, the my enthusiasm is that I appreciate, um, I call it exploring the inner and outer universes. 
So you're out there exploring the outer universe, but at the same time, you're traversing what's inside you. And that's always been a big turn on for me personally, and, and one of the main motivating factors in providing these opportunities for other people. Yeah, I think um, for me, it's been great because I truthfully have never been a good athlete. And it's, it's, it's an exercise for me, at least in using a mental toolkit, as opposed to like a physical talent, which has been great, because it just has opened up the playing field for me to go out and try to do some bigger races. And I mean, nothing to the level of what you've created yet, but hopefully eventually. Um, so you're cycling, when do you start getting into running? Well, um, I can tell you exactly when, uh, when I was 20 and I completed the race across America, I, I bike raced from San Francisco to Washington, Washington, DC in under 11 days. And after completing that race, uh, I suddenly realized that I was an athlete, not just a cyclist. Like my business card said, Chris Kosman, professional cyclist. But after doing that, I suddenly realized that I was an athlete. And uh, although my uh, focus was still cycling, I started seeing beyond the, that. Uh, and so what happened was six months after that first race across America, I went up to Alaska for a 200 mile mountain bike race um, on the snow in winter. And on the Iditarod Trail, this was the second time that any type of race like that had, had happened. Um, and I competed in that. And it was really a mind-blowing experience because it, sure, it was the ultra cycling, but I was on snow. I was in the wilderness. I was largely self-supported for 200 miles. There were just a few aid stations. Um, and you had to carry everything you needed. And that... Um, exposed me to other winter sports more directly. Like, you know, I lived in California, Southern California, or up in Berkeley. And, uh, and so that got me thinking about other things. And then uh, when I was 23, I did my first Ironman, which was in Canada. And that was an incredible experience. Um, and then I did another one the next year. And then I went back, I, I'd been doing these races in Alaska and the, the bike event in Alaska merged with a skiing and snowshoeing ultra race. And so when I went up, when I was 26, I did the 100 mile snowshoe race. And I'm just flying up there from Berkeley. Like I didn't train in the snow. I never wore snowshoes. Like I just flew up there and did it. And you had to carry your own, you know, your survival gear for the hundred miles. And there were only two aid stations that only provided water, tang and hot chocolate. Everything else was on you. And uh, that just, you know, so that was my first ultra marathon, you know, true ultra marathon running experience was 100 in miles. snowshoes. On snowshoes, self-supported in Alaska in February. Um, yeah. And, and then Trial at that point, right. I saw myself as an outdoor athlete and uh, adventure athlete and just embraced the whole world as my arena. And so then whether it was the snowshoeing, I did ultra cycling races, ultra swimming races, ultra triathlon, um, and just sort of went all in. Uh, anything that went far and chased the horizon, as I like to say, then that's what I wanted to be part of. Now, were you training year round as well? 
Oh yeah, but mainly cycling. Um, that was kind of the crazy thing about those years was I mainly was cycling and I had such, you know, I had a VO2 max of 72 or something like that and resting heart rate in the low 30s, maximum wow. heart rate of like 212. And so I would just use my massive cardiovascular engine and then just go like physically and mentally will myself through all of these things. Um, so yeah, I was always training and I was super fit, but I was mainly cycling with some running, occasional swimming. Um, you know, I'd gotten into yoga and that helped, um, you know, no injuries. Um, not for a long time. Eventually. Yes. Eventually I, I injured my right Achilles in one, in a, in a race in Alaska. Uh, I was doing a 350 mile race that year and I, I damaged my right Achilles. So I, I made it till I was uh, 30 before I got a real injury. So, and I don't recommend what I just described. Like people should train for sports specifics. Like don't just bike all the time and then go snowshoe hundred miles. It's not a good idea. Even if you pull it off, eventually it'll catch up with you. So. I know you're sending a pretty bad message to all the people that are trying to run bad water this year. Probably I'll just show up and do it. Yeah, well, that's that's why we have a selection process for that race, um, because we want people to show up, you know, capable of finishing. Um, but yeah, it, it was uh, and I will definitely say as I got older, especially once I was into grad school and I was putting on multiple races every year, um, doing everything at once became almost basically impossible. Like I, I've in my life, I found I can do two things at the same time really well. Um, but to like race at a high level and be in a PhD program and run my business, that was too much. And I was just like constantly juggling things and trying to make it work. And, and it was, um, yeah, that was, you know, I, I ended up doing the triple Ironman in France, which is three times the regular Ironman distance. And I just showed up there having basically not trained for it at all. I was so busy between expeditions overseas, grad school, putting on races. I was writing a lot back then, you know, like 30, 40, 50 articles a year. And then I go to this triple Ironman and I just like totally winged it. I mean, I, I, it was just insane when I look back on that, like what I did, you know, with. Sorry, Chris, to, to cut you off real quick. Can you explain? Um, so was a triple Ironman, did you have to do all the running at once, all the biking yeah. at once, all the swimming at once? Yeah. Okay, so just to clarify for anyone listening, a regular distance Ironman is a 2.4-mile swim in a 112-mile bike in a full marathon. So what Chris is saying he did, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, <laughs> he did roughly uh, 7.8 7 7.8 swim, a 300 plus mile bike yeah. and around a 75 to 80 mile run 78.6 miles yep in 53 and a half hours with a 20 no training run. yeah no training and uh but i had a great You're support sick. Group. Sick. <laughs> yeah well i was 26 you know back then you know i knew that year that i was in way over my head and i just willed myself through it um and it was in France. My brother lived there. He had been on a support team for two years for friends of mine who'd done the race. And so he was really excited to have me come do it. I didn't, I mean, it was fantastic that I finished and I, I had a dramatic finish, actually a sprint finish for 17th place with a German guy. Um, 
but I definitely didn't race anywhere near my potential. And uh, I remember, um, let me do the math here. I was, uh, several years later, I did a 24 hour mountain bike race here in Southern California. And my brother supported me on that. And I came in second. And after that, he told me that I'd redeemed myself in his eyes because that, that was hardcore work crewing for me, suffering through 53 and a half hours of triple Ironman racing. And so he was glad to see me racing to my proper potential. Um, it was actually like six years later, that mountain bike race. But yeah, don't recommend these things. Train properly, people. Care for your body. How long did the run portion of the triple Ironman take you? Uh, I don't remember anymore. Um, it, it must have, it must have been like 24 hours or something. I, I, I couldn't say, let me think here. The, the swim was four hours and something. Um, yeah, the bike was, was very mountainous. Uh, I'm going to, and I was not in shape. So I'm going to say the bike was probably around 24 hours, 28 hours. And then the run was 20 to 24 hours, something like that. Wow. But it was very really exciting because it was, uh, first of all, the swim was in a pool because the French Triathlon Federation doesn't allow races with, at least back then, with swims that long in open water. And so it was down and back 114 times. It was 11,400 meters. And then the bike, we did, I think, about six laps of about a 60-mile loop through the mountains. And then each of those bike loops, you came back through the start finish area of the overall race, um, which had like grandstands and, you know, DJ and music and lights and everything. Your crew. Yeah. And then, well, the crew was following me in a support vehicle. And then for the run, we did an eight kilometer figure eight loop over however many times that is. And, uh, that was really awesome because you were all in this town called Le Fontenil. It's a suburb of Grenoble, southeastern eastern France. And the race director was the mayor. And uh, so you went through that finish line area twice per lap. And Radio Monte Carlo was there with this giant RV that looked like a giant boom box. And they're, you know, calling the race out and and then I speak French. And so, you know, people liked me and uh, I had all my fingernails painted different colors and I'd come through doing this and like, you know, I just had a blast and uh, it was a great, great experience. And the, the race organization was the best I'd ever seen of any race I'd been to. I was so blown away at the professionalism, the enthusiasm, all of the swag with their name on it. I mean, we've got a watch and a jacket and a duffel bag. And this was what, you know, I learned, you know, I wasn't just there as an athlete. I was there as a race director learning and these people were masters and that, you know, there've been a few times in my career as a promoter where I've been inspired by what other event producers do. When I come back and I next level what I'm doing uh, because I see even, you know, my, my view of what's possible expands and i just learned so much of that race now that seems like it was like a heavily promoted event but i mean as you know in the ultra world some ultra athletes prefer a less manicured race 
Um, some people just like the ones with the tiny aid stations through the woods. You got to make your way. I think from what I've seen, I've never attended Badwater. I would like to, but it seems like you have a good balance of both. Was that, is that thought out? Like you want to give the racers a good race, but you also want it to seem like it's a, a big race. How exactly. do you navigate that? Um, what I aim to deliver is a professionally organized race held at a world-class level where, you know, I, I look, you know, my, I, I see the peers of Adventure Corps, uh, my company as, you know, the Ironman and the Tour de France and the Wimbledon, that kind of thing. Like I want that super high level of professionalism, but at the same time, I want to deliver an intimate experience. And that's why most of my races have 100, 115, 150 runners, because I don't want people to feel like they're just in a sea of bodies. Like, I mean, that's cool too, when that happens. Like I, I, I've run the Boston Marathon and been there on the 100th anniversary race with I think 40,000 runners or something. And that was awesome. But I want people doing my races to have an intimate experience where we all get to know one another, where I get to know all the athletes, where they, um, you know, have time alone on the race course. They're not always with other runners and other support crews, if that's part of it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm definitely looking for that balance of like professional world-class event production, but small intimate experience um, at the same time. And the beauty of these, these sports is that there's all these different ways to organize and to participate. Like, you know, people don't have to do what I put on and, um, you know, they've got that option. You know, if people want the bad water experience, we're here. And for people who want to do other types of races, whether it's 40,000 runners or whether it's a loop through a park with one aid station and you're going around and around again, uh, or you want to be out in the wilderness on trails and just see aid every 10 miles or something. I mean, that's part of what's so fantastic about endurance sports and ultra in general is that you've got all these different ways to experience it. Agreed. Now, when you started Badwater, what year was that? Well, I took it over. The, the, I took it over starting with the 2000 race. The first person to ever run the route was Al Arnold, who was nearly 50 years old back in 1977. So he did it. He became the first person on his third attempt to complete the route. It was completed again in 1981 by a man named Jay Birmingham. The race itself started in 1987 with four competitors, a British man and woman versus an American man and woman. Uh, then it was 12 to 25 people from 1988 through 1998. Um, and then in 1999, there were 42 runners. And that was the last one that the previous organizers, which were actually a shoe company that put it on as a marketing event, uh, they turned it over to me after the 99 race. And, uh, and so 2000 was my first. And that was before I was organizing it, it was really off the radar. There was no website. There was, there was no known way to enter. You had to send a letter to this shoe company and ask if you could enter. And they literally put the race on with just two staff. Like they had no timing checkpoints, no Jeez. webcast, no race officials, no medical support, nothing. It was just show up. You know, they had a pre-race meeting, a little one, and then everyone would just show up the next morning and they'd start it. They would take some photos and then they would drive to the finish line, sleep, and then just be there for people to finish. 
It was the most, you know, disorganized, meaning just no organization event I'd ever seen. I went to that last one that they put on in 99 and my jaw hit the ground. Like I had uh, 15 years of experience with open road events at that point, And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was kind of just chaotic and insane and dangerous. Now, um, sorry to cut you off, Chris. I just yeah. want to clarify for anyone listening. Um, so Chris, you're referring to Badwater 135, right? Yeah. So Chris's race, it takes place in the hottest part of Death Valley, California, in the world, at the hottest part of the year. And you have to travel from sea level all the way through this mountain range at the end of the course. It's 135 miles. So what Chris is saying is when he before he took the race over, there were only two organizers or two people aiding it. That is so, so incredibly dangerous. Like, was there a fatality? No. Uh, there had not been and still have not been. Um, but I will say that when I went out to meet with the park, now I had been organizing a 508 mile bike race through Death Valley for 10 years at that point when I got the opportunity to take over the Badwater 135. And, um, and so I had a really good working relationship with the park service and the county and the CHP, et cetera. And when I went out to meet with the park service about to talk to them about my vision for the Badwater race, I wanted to have way more runners, but I wanted to make it way safer. And they literally thanked me. They said, we were going to shut this race down. It's so dangerous. It's not controlled at all. There's, there's no structure to it. And this was going to be the last year of that race. But now that you're taking it over and we know you and your organization and what you can deliver, you know, we're excited about that. And they let me, you know, take it from, you know, had been around 20, 25 runners to 42 that last year that the other people put it on. And then I took it to 90 runners and then a hundred. Um, but by doing a variety of things to make it far safer and, and better organized, um, like wave starts. So three waves of 30 to 40 runners um, not allowing motorhomes and large vehicles, limiting the number of crew members uh, and things like that to, as well as having race officials and timing checkpoints and, uh, you know, medical team and, and uh, communications and all of the things that a properly organized event has. Um, and that's how we've operated it ever since. And the goal each year is have it again next year and then have it be even better. And so that, those are my two driving forces each year that I'm working on the race and then actually hosting it is this should go so well, we get to come back and then I wanna make it even better. Now with the popularization of ultra running, one, did you ever expect ultra running to get to this place? And when you had started, was it always your goal to try to make your race like a pinnacle race in the world? Uh, absolutely. I. Because of my longtime experience with the Death Valley to Mount Whitney region, not only as a bike racer, but as an event promoter, I saw this area as what I like to call Mother Nature's greatest sports arena. And I had a profound appreciation and respect for the legendary race, even though it was being held off the radar, like I said, no website, etc. But I, I was aware of it almost from the very beginning. In fact, I'd even been invited to participate in it the fourth year it was held. 
Um, but I got an opportunity to direct a three-day triathlon stage race up in Canada, and I, I did that instead. Um, but I saw this race had the potential to be something massively bigger than it was. And what I specifically saw it as the potential to be sort of the de facto Olympics of ultra running with people coming from all over the world to compete there. And even though I knew it would always be a relatively small race, 100 runners, um, I wanted as many countries as possible to be represented. And the previous organizer literally told me they didn't let anyone in who didn't speak English. Um, which not only rules out quite a few American citizens or residents, but also <laughs> rules out people coming from many other places. And I had a totally different vision. I wanted this to be uh, the ultimate international showdown for ultra athletes. And the very, and so I launched the website, promoted the heck out of it. And that very first year I hosted it in 2000, the top five finishing place uh, were from Russia, Slovenia, Japan, Russia, Russia, and then finally an American in sixth place. And wow. needless to say, the men's and women's records were crushed by Russians that year. And I just felt like from year one, this was a success because I had taken this underground unknown event, put it on the international stage, brought in world-class athletes from uh, all over and, uh, and you know, it just brought everything a, a thousand levels higher, not only from a production point of view, but from a competition point of view. Uh, and, and that was a big thrill for me. And, uh, and that's my goal every year is to provide that forum. And uh, so, yeah, my, my vision was that it would be what it is. Um, but the growth of the sport, you know, the other part of your question is, has been amazing. When I took over the Badwater 135 in 1999, there were 10 100 mile trail races in the US. Wow. 10 100 ultras, that's it. Now there's a few hundred 100 mile races. There's even more 50 mile, 50 kilometer races. Then there's all the 24 hour races. And then there's the new formats that have come in the last few years, like the backyard ultra, last man standing type things. There's this the, the were the Barclays around back then? Say it again. Was the Barclay Marathon around back then? Oh no, no. Yeah, there were just you know the the legendary races like Western States 100 and Leadville. Leadville, yeah. You know those uh, Vermont 100. Um, yeah, they were and and but so right from the beginning of my involvement, Badwater 135 was different from all those races. First of all, because it's on pavement, not trails. And so when I first really got heavily involved with the sport, other than Badwater, it was all trail racing or snow racing, you know, wilderness. And now there are other pavement ultras and other types of, you know, things. It's still ultra running is still overwhelmingly on trails, but now there's a, a wide variety of, of things happening. But back then, like we were the total outlier being this pavement thing, not to mention 135 miles, so 35 longer than the other top ultra races. And so, yeah, the growth has been astonishing. Although I, and the number of people doing the sport is way more than it was, but there are more races coming on than runners from what I can tell, because 
there are just so many races now, it's just off the charts. And everybody who's an event promoter is struggling to, to uh, get people in their race. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's just so many options now to, to do it. People don't, you know, I've always hosted destination races where, you know, you're not really catering to too many locals, partly because they're in the middle of nowhere, but, you know, people come there from all over, but most, most races, even marathons, but also ultra marathons and stuff, your people are generally from that general region. That's where most of them come from. And if you have just zillions of people in that same region or metropolitan area or whatever, um, and then, you know, this many races and this many runners, then you just, the race directors are sort of slicing the same, the same pie into smaller and smaller pieces. Yeah, I agree. Truthfully though, where I'm from in Boston, there really aren't any perennial races. I mean, there is the Vermont, there's the JFK, but in terms of a hundred, there isn't a huge variety. Um, what I did see, and I, I don't know if you've heard about this race, there is someone, I believe it's called Infinitus. Are you familiar? Infinite? It, it looked like they were trying to do an 888 kilometer race. Have you ever considered trying to do something in that type of distance? I mean, I think it was like 520 miles. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing is people want to stand out, not only as race directors, but as athletes. And for the longest time, our 135 mile Badwater Ultra Marathon was basically the longest ultra out there. I mean, there were a few like loop races where you run for a week or a month or something, but you know, around a park or whatever. But now there are quite a few races that are 150 miles, 200 miles has become a thing. Uh, there's even longer ones, you know, the Moab has his race across Tennessee that's 300 and some miles. And, um, you know, if that's what people want to organize or, or participate in, that's, that's cool too. I mean, I doesn't impact us in any way. Um, it, I sort of question at what point is it still a running race versus like a high speed hiking and sleep deprivation test. Um, but I, you know, people are enjoying doing those kind of things and that's great. You know, chase your now, however you want to. I, I think one thing you've done a great job at with the bad water is you bring you've branded it. And I don't know if this was inadvertent or not, but you've branded it as like, this is going to be the most brutal and tough race you could sign up for. Now, was that a goal going out? Like, okay, well, really, make I, was, this as I just as reflect what the athletes have told me from the beginning. Um, because people from the beginning are coming from all over the world to do the Badwater 135. And from the beginning, they were saying, this is the toughest foot race. Like when we're at the other races, we're talking about how Badwater is the toughest race. And now that I've run the Badwater 135, I know it's the toughest race. And so from the beginning, that's what I was being told. And so that's where our messaging of Badwater 135, the world's toughest foot race, that comes from the athletes. Uh, that's not just me as the promoter. I'm just reflecting what people say. Now, of course, I've now been putting the race on for 23 years and it's, and it's been going on for 33 years and other races have come along that are extremely tough and challenging. Um, and that's fine. And, you know, we're going to keep promoting our event as the world's toughest because that's what we're told it is. And, and that's, that's just part of the legend of the race. Uh, other races can be longer. 
um, but the combination of factors at our race, the distance, the extreme heat, the three mountain ranges that the runners traverse, the pavement, which is much harder on the body than trails, um, the uh, seven pages of rules that the runners need to follow, the support vehicle and the, you know, the challenge of working with a support crew as well as being on the support crew. Um, and then the extremes of the climate, it's not just the heat. Okay, sure, at night in Death Valley, it's 90s or 100, and then it's 115, 20, 25 during the day. But you head up Mount Whitney in the middle of the night, it's down around freezing. We've had a 100 degree extreme from highest to lowest temperature in the same race. Oh and God. so all, and then there's the, you know, we can have insane wind and dust storms. You know, we've had flash floods on the course. We've had fires. Um, all of that to me cumulatively still makes it the world's toughest race, even though there are races that are 200 miles or something like that. Uh, and the other thing about a race that makes it so tough is the level of scrutiny of it. People are following this race. Like our website and our social media are blowing up. People are following how everyone's doing, where they are, who they are. Um, and people show up, you know, it's a big undertaking to get in the race, to train for the race, to do the race. You're spending a lot of time, energy and money to be there. You want to finish. That's the goal. People want that belt buckle. And, and so all of that pressure, and then it's like a goldfish bowl, even though you're out in Death Valley and there aren't really spectators, everybody is spectating online because we're just putting out like a thousand images and zillions of Instagram and Facebook videos and all of that. And all of that puts, makes it a pressure cooker also. And that's another reason that it's the world's toughest race because everyone's watching. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's just legendary, just some of the people in the sport that have run it and have strived to perform well at it. Um, so one of my favorite parts of the David Goggins book is when he describes trying to get into the bad water. And I, I I'm assuming this is true, but you were like, yeah, you got to go run a hundred. And so he went out and he had this brutal experience doing like a 24 hour race and he ran a hundred miles in well, like 18, 19 hours. And then you email him back. You're like, yeah, well, that wasn't your job. You were supposed to finish all 24 hours. Is that true? <laughs> so it first started with his commanding <laughs> officer with the Navy SEALs emailed me saying, this guy is basically the the most badass person I've ever known. And I'm like the head of the Navy SEALs, so I know badass. You should really let him do your race. And I said, well, that's great, but he has to be qualified. Now, this was, I forget, 2006 or something like that. So the, it was, the qualifying standard back then was you needed one 100 mile race or 100 miles or more in a 24 hour race to even apply. Now it's three 100 mile races and we don't accept track races, but that was it back then. And so first I got the email, then I still had a landline back then. And the phone number was on the website and my phone rung at like seven in the morning. And so I answered it, the Adventure Corps, and it's David Goggins calling me about Badwater. And I looked at the phone and I looked at the clock and I said, do you realize what time it is? And there was this pause and he said, Roger that, sir. I'll call you back at 0900. Click. 
So that was the start was me like telling him, dude, why are you calling me so early in the morning? Like if it's 7 a.m., it should be my mom with an emergency, you know, not somebody calling, you know, a business and expecting them to be open. So he calls me back at nine and we had a nice conversation. And I said, well, you have to be qualified. And I looked on the Internet and I saw that there was a 24 hour track race down there in San Diego where he lived like that weekend. And so he. I told him, go do that, report back how it went. So then I get an email a few days later. Okay, I ran 101 miles in 18 hours or whatever. And I responded, well, that's great. What was your total distance? And then he writes back 101 miles. And I said, I'm confused. The point of a 24 hour race is to run for 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wasn't really so trying to pissed. shame him, but so I also pissed. was just like, that's not normal. Like the point is to run for 24 hours. And so even though technically he'd met the qualifying standard, he wanted to prove himself. Um, and so then, I don't know, a few weeks or a month later or whatever, he did the Hurt 100 in Hawaii, put on Hurt stands for Hawaii Ultra Running Team. And it's yeah. this brutal mountainous hundred mile race usually raining muddy with like a million tree roots on the course and slipping and gliding and tripping and falling. And he did that too, just to sort of underline that he was bad water ready. And that was how it all started. And it's, it's a great story. It's a true story. And I've been a big fan of David Goggins ever since then. Well, you've, I mean, I'm sure you've read the book, but he, when he recounts his experience at that 100 mile race, it was like, agonizing for him <laughs> he didn't even have running shoes and he didn't know what to eat or drink and all he had was crackers yes i mean just strongest guy i'm sure in terms of his overall fitness to ever get into ultra running i mean what they do in navy seal training is just so off the charts it's you know but running around a track that all that repetitive motion i mean that's insanely difficult in its own way no matter what kind of fitness you bring into it and especially if you don't eat right drink right have the right shoes and socks it was just it yeah the way he described it is just how naive he was walking into it but it's just so funny that he goes well hey look i just put myself through level five thousand pain i'm ready you go well yeah. that wasn't really the goal that's hilarious yeah. man no, now, it, it's I highly recommend David's book. It's it's a fascinating story. It's incredibly well written. Um, I was blown away by it. I was honestly shocked by his life story, and I had kind of gotten to know him over the years. Uh, you know, when the book came out, but his story of what he went through with his upbringing, with his home life, with the racism, with the KKK in his hometown, with and then the the what it was like to go through. Navy SEAL training, not once, but several times. It's really an astonishing story. And uh, I, I just think he's an incredible human being and proud to have him be a Badwater veteran and, and be an American. Uh, he's amazing. And that's a great story. It's, it's so well written. Incredible story. And it's a, it's a great story about the race you created too. it just being it's just, it's special because you've created an opportunity for people who really want to push their limits and their potential. You've created that event. Like, okay, if you want to see if you can maximize your potential, maximize your limits, come race in my event. And that um, is 100% why I do what I do. 
I, I'm providing a platform where people can have life-changing experiences. That is what I do. And that's what I'm driven to do. And I have, you know, since I was a teenager. So I appreciate that you get that um, because it's, 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 it's that big. It's not a running race. You know, it's, it's so much more. It's, it's a way of life. I'm sure some people think you're mentally ill, but I know what's going <laughs> well, on. I'm there. the one putting it on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nobody's making these people get qualified and apply and get in and pay and put their crew together and come. I mean, that's all voluntary. And, you know, and I'm, I'm lucky and, you know, grateful that many people want to do that each year. And it's an incredible experience for me and all of the nearly 50 people on the race staff to provide that opportunity. Um, and there are more people than I could ever count who will be there every summer, no matter what. They are working the race, crewing the race, or running the race every year. And they set their year-round clock by that because it means that much to them to be part of it. Now, can you just clarify one more time what the lottery process is? for? Th is this year's race field already chosen? It is. Um, we announced the race field on January 30. It's not a lottery. It's the only ultramarathon that's uh, – let me back up. There are a few different ways to enter races. First come, first serve, uh, or a lottery where it's generally random, pull names out of a hat kind of thing. But then there's different lotteries that are weighted where people can have multiple tickets in the, in the thing and more chances to get pulled, but it's still a lottery. Um, but we've never operated that way. From the beginning, I knew that I'm taking people to the hottest place on earth, like officially Guinness Book World Record, 134 degrees, 57 degrees centigrade, uh, hottest place on earth, and putting them through this 135 mile grueling race. And so I want people there who can safely and successfully do that because we want a smooth and successful event so that can happen next year. And so from the beginning, we've asked people not only to meet certain standards of even to apply what races they've done, um, but we've asked some questions like, why do you want to run the Badwater 135? What does Badwater mean to you? What is the meaning of life? Um, what is your predicted finishing time? And how did you make that prediction? Um, and other things, we've questions come and go over the years because we're just trying to get at who is this person and what are they about? Why do they want to be here? And through all of that, we evaluate everybody, score them, and, um, and then that's how we select the field. And so it's, it's invitational um, because I wanna host a safe and successful race. And because all of our government agency partners expect that of us. Like we work with the National Park Service, the US Forest Service, the County of Inyo, the Department of Transportation, and the California Highway Patrol. They want to sing hosting as smooth and safe of event as possible. And the first major way that we accomplish doing that is by bringing runners out there that we think are most likely to be able to finish and do it safely and successfully. I was going to say, so you like really give a lot of your runners almost like a temperament test to make sure that they're getting into this because they truly want to push their potential and they're not just like a masochist or something like that. Yeah. Or just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We want, 
you know, early you, you use the phrase pinnacle event. I've always seen Badwater 135 could and should and hopefully is the pinnacle event in any ultra runner's career. It, it should be, you know, it's the top of Mount Everest for them. And by the way, way more people have hit the summit of Mount Everest than collected a Badwater 135 belt buckle. Um, but it should be like that, like you've reached the top. And for the rest of your life, you're going to be a Badwater 135 finisher. You're gonna own that holy grail of ultra running the belt buckle from our, our race. Um, and sure, you're gonna do other races. Uh, although some people do our race and they just retire. <laughs> They've done it all at this point and they, they retire. Um, you know, others, you know, most keep on racing, but I'd like to believe that whatever they do in the future, not only as an athlete, but as a person, they're going to be that much more confident and capable because of the crucible that they went through in the Death Valley to Mount Whitney race course. So for instance, when you were evaluating Mikel Graglia's application, who Mikel came on this show, I still text me, helped me a lot with my hundred. Um, were you just like, okay, this guy's has a bunch of wins under his belt and this is his first application before he won yeah he's got a bunch of wins under his belt nice guy he just loves nature is that yeah and also he's italian and so we want you know foreign people in our race or not foreign but we want people of as many nationalities as possible i mean as long as they're at a high level of, of ability um yeah and we're we're you know it, it's not like You know, there's a group of us that score these, and so we all come in with our angles. But our philosophy is people who are li likely to finish smoothly, safely, successfully. Um, and then ideally as many nations as possible, as many women as possible, as many diverse backgrounds as possible. And diversity in every sense. We don't get headshots from people. We don't know what they look like. Um, but we get the diversity from having so many nationalities represented, but also other types of diversity, like Somebody's mainly a mountaineer, but they've also done major ultra runs and they're qualified to be there. Or maybe they're mainly an adventure racer or mainly a triathlete or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and other things too, like, you know, some people, a lot of people have done amazing things, you know, charitable efforts in association with racing. And so, you know, we, we're trying to bring together as many of these different sort of angles and personalities as possible. It's, it's not just oh, these people have won a lot of races, therefore they get in. Like the focus in the race is from first to last. It's not like the top three or something like in the Olympics. Like everybody is equal and equally valid and important in the world of Badwater. And so we're not just trying to fill the race with people who can win it. Okay, I, I just got one, one or two more questions before we wrap up here. Um, um, and this has been great, man. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I appreciate it. Um, what I've noticed is the disparity between male performance in ultra running and female performance with ultra running is very small when it comes up to some of the pinnacle runners. For instance, I've been fascinated by Courtney DeWalter. I've just been like, she's just out here smoking all the guys why is that? Cause there's in no other sport is that possible in our lifetime, at least. Well, 
I'm no exercise physiologist, so I can't speak on that from a scientific point of view, but I will point out that way back in 2002 and 2003, our overall winner was a woman, Pam Reed. And so she was really one of the first people to, first women to overall win a major international ultramarathon. And, uh, and we even got her on the David Letterman show uh, after her second win. And so she was on national TV and it was a fantastic interview. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, there's just so many things that factor into success in ultra endurance sports. Back to the very beginning about how unusual it was that I was young uh, when I got into it as an athlete is that most people are mentally tougher and also more willing to accept long-term delayed gratification versus right now. And that's why people doing ultra sports tend to be 40s and 50s mainly. Um, and so that's part of it. Um, and then there's just a lot to be said about how tough women are in general. I mean, most of the women I know have a full-time job and they run the household. They race, do most of the parenting, the cooking, the shopping, the, you know, running the household and all of that. And they train and they compete. They're incredible. They're, they're superheroes. And so it doesn't surprise me then that, um, and time management is such a big thing. And so it doesn't surprise me that so many women are so successful in ultra endurance sports because they're superheroes 24 um, seven. And I just sometimes wonder if there's something evolutionary about it. Like maybe yeah. some, I mean, you're an archeologist, maybe there was some point as human race was evolving where women would have to travel, travel much farther distances than men. Or equal. I mean, the modern, you know, Again, I, I'm not an, a prehistory person. I, you know, I'm a Bronze Age, Iron Age guy. But, but uh, you know, the, the sort of division of labor into male and female, and these people do the physical work, and these ones do the housework or whatever. Like that's relatively modern, you know, in the grand scheme of things. And uh, going out foraging for food or chasing it down. I mean, I'm sure in prehistory that women were doing it just as much as men. And so I, you know, running is a natural thing to do. That's why I, I try not to scoff or sneer when people try to talk to me about like, oh, running is bad for your knees or nonsense that people think. No, what's bad for your knees and your body is sitting in a chair all day. You know, human beings were born to run and that's natural and normal. Um, and I just think, you know, women, because of the societal expectations on them are more organized, more time efficient, get more done. Um, and then who knows, maybe there's something to be said about the, the pain and challenge of, of uh, childbirth. You know, women are just tough, they're badasses. And I'm glad that, you know, people are learning that partly, you know, or understanding that better through ultra sports. Like I, I love it. I mean, 2019, our second overall finisher was, was a woman, uh, Patricia from Poland, and she broke the women's record. She came in second overall and, and well ahead of the third place and second man. Um, so yeah, it's awesome. And I just think it's more important to just like look at people as people and um, appreciate all that they 
have to offer and can do. And, uh, but I, but, you know, as, as a committee, we want a high representation of women in the, in the, in the Badwater 135. One thing I have noticed, two things statistically, since that's kind of what you led with. One, in the Badwater 135, women are far more likely to finish than the men. The DNF rates are astonishingly different. Like women wow. almost entirely finish the race. And so that's fantastic right there. Um, and two, something I've noticed because I also organize other Badwater events of different distances, like our Badwater Cape Fear race has a 50 kilometer and a 51 mile race, for example. And then we have our Badwater Salton Sea, which is 81 miles. What I have noticed is that the longer the race, the less women will be in it. And I think that directly ties to how much time do they have to train? How much time do they have to get away from the family to race, travel for racing and all of that? I mean, that's just my guess, I don't know. Um, and so we, we really, as a committee, want to get more women into the race. And this year, I think we have 35 or something like, we have a record number of women and, uh, and I'm stoked about that. I mean, I, it's just gonna be, it's gonna be awesome. And um, I wonder if, um, I mean, it's so interesting that the DNF rates are that much different. I wonder if that's just because men are naturally more impulsive and they maybe just want to go out faster and they burn out or what I mean. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I, I really um, don't like generalizations and stereotypes, but, um, but yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, some people are more likely to go out too hard and kind of flame out. Other people are more methodical and will stick to their own race and be less uh, reactive to what the other competitors are doing. But that's not to say I haven't seen plenty of women come out there and throw it down hard from the first mile and struggle to keep the place they're in or pass the uh, not only other women, but men in front of them. Um, so I don't know. It's. I mean, they all go through the same selection process, men and women, they've got, you know, a lot of bona fides on their resume before they get there. They, everybody gets the same communications from us. And, um, but yeah, there's, it's, the other statistic is that rookies are more likely to finish than veterans. So wow. yeah, it's, uh, and that's why we put more emphasis on more women and, and more rookies. It's part of why. Um, we used to have a 50-50 race field, 50% veterans, 50% rookies. And, but then when we really started looking at these statistics, as well as all of the feedback we get from people who want to get into the race, we just realized we need to get more new people into the race. So this year we didn't have a quota system per se, but it ended up being 65% new people, 35% rookies. Um, and Not, about nice. the same split of male versus female. And so I, I'm, I've never been more excited about the race field as I am for this year. I mean, it's just, it's going to be fantastic. July 11 through 13. That's can't wait. I'm excited. I'm hoping I'm out to California by that point. So I can go over and I can spectate for sure. Um, one last question. So bring it back to that Goggins book real quick. A lot of it's centered around potential and a lot of these books on ultra running are just, all about just kind of tapping into potential. Now, do you have an overarching thought on how much potential we actually have as humans and how much we're actually tapping into? Do you think it's limitless? Like, what are, what are, what are some of the thoughts you have on human potential? 
Well, I've been fascinated with human potential my whole life. And I think everybody with me at the top of the list does not come close to reaching their potential uh, in every way, physically, intellectually, emotionally. Um, in archeology, span what I studied was long distance trade and exchange and in the Bronze Age. So we're talking, you know, four or 5,000 years ago, people were going over land thousands of miles or going in ships thousands of miles or even across, you know, entire seas or oceans. And those people just rivet me because the fact that they'd be willing to go so far into the unknown uh, is incredible. And, you know, the language barriers, the geographical barriers, the cultural barriers, and yet they were doing it. And, and so I've always been really just fascinated with people who are inspired to go over the horizon and way beyond. And, and so I, I see that, you know, philosophically as well, that everybody has so much more potential. Um, and I love that about this sport. And I love that in running or cycling, you know, you you can start with the 5k and then the 10k, the half marathon, the marathon, the 50k, there's this whole progression that people can go through if they want to. And when I read these applications, when we ask people, why do they want to do the Babylon 135? It's amazing how many people will say, well, eight years ago, I read Dean Karnazes' book, Ultra Marathon and I was a super, I was an obese chain smoker. And I read that book and I put away the cigarettes and I went out and did my first mile and then they'll tell the progression. And here they are applying to be in this race that they first heard about in that book. Um, and, and David Goggins book, much more recent, but we're already seeing people referencing it in their application and how it, the, it lit a spark in them, you know, um, Charlie Engel's book, Pam Reed's book. There have been many books by Badwater uh, athletes that have sparked a significant change in people where they're no longer willing to settle for where they are in their life and they want to explore their potential and achieve as much of it as they can. And that's why, you know, all of this is so meaningful to me because it's, it's not just, oh, who's going to, you know, come in the top three or whatever. It's no, these people are changing their lives for themselves, but then they're, they're inspiring others with what they do. Like everyone who competes in the Badwater 135 has a unique and, and meaningful story. And many of them will get press coverage wherever it is they live. So they may not have like a bestseller, uh, you know, or, or be on the national news, but they might be in the local paper, the local websites or the county or the state and they're impacting that community or just with their daily example, their neighbor sees them head out the door constantly, you know, or they're just getting up for breakfast and their coffee and they see their neighbor coming in, finishing a 10 mile run. All of these people are just influencing all the others uh, in a good way. And, and so, yeah, human potential is what we as a civilization should be striving to explore and expand. And I'm, and I'm glad that, you know, people who do ultra endurance sports are part of that. I agree. I think, um, I think endurance, I think running in general is one of the few ways that humans can actually experiment with their potential and actually have real results that they can look at and they can slowly see the progression. 
Um, I think that's what's so fun. Like I, I started running, my first run was in June, 2020 and I ran two miles and I had ran 21 minutes. I was thrown up and then I ran a hundred 18 months later. And, um, yeah. And so, I mean, but there are thousands of stories like that. I mean, even in the David Goggins book, guy yeah. was like, he's, he's like 300 pounds. He lost a hundred pounds in like a, a month is something crazy like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, it's, it's out there if people want it. Um, and we'll be, you know, happy to see him at one of our races. If, if that's what, you know, excites them. For sure. Well, Hey man, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate your enthusiasm and interest and for, you know, taking the, you know, to care, you know, and really get it and uh, see Badwater in its broader context. And so I appreciate that very much and encourage everyone to put a little Badwater into their life every day. I like that. That's nice. Um, th this is how we, we start in the episodes, just because we do it for editing purposes. You just got to say, hi, my name is blank, your name, and this is my golden hour. That's, that's what you want me to say? That, yeah, just sums okay. the whole thing up. Hi, I am Chris Costman, and this is my golden hour. Boom. Good to go, man. All right, well, hey, man, thank you so much. And I'm going uh, to shoot you a text after this. I'll get your address, and we'll shoot you over a T-shirt. Yeah, cool. And let me know, you know, when you get to L.A., and, you know, maybe we can meet up and do something. And or if you need L.A. advice, I'm your guy. So happy to help. L.A. is an endurance event. Of its yeah, own, I know. There's a lot to <laughs> learn about getting around LA and, you know, but you work from home, right? I will be. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good. I mean, I've told a million people I've lived in LA this long. I mean, I haven't only lived here, but I've mainly lived here. I can do it because I work from home and I got trails out my door. So otherwise it'd be too many. Yeah. The traffic. I don't have to commute. Yeah. I hear you. All right, man. Well, Hey, thank you so much. And um, you have hey, an awesome welcome. day. Good talking to you. Have a good one. Appreciate it. Bye. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait. Was that not it? Hey, enter. Just, you forgot to enter.